Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. The end of Ontario's eviction ban has amplified eviction fears across the province. Here in Hamilton, landlords applied to evict hundreds of tenants over the unpaid rent problem. We'll talk about the impact that's going to have. Dr. Teresa Tam says that social distancing measures could last longer than the pandemic and could be in place for another two or three years. Dr. Isaac Bogosh will join us to discuss that. And some parents are taking education into their own hands due to the COVID-19 pandemic. What are pandemic pods? Well, we'll explain. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Concerns about evictions continue uh, with, again, a government policy that was in place. You may remember when uh, Doug Ford uh, declared a state of emergency here in Ontario. Uh, he also said there will be a moratorium on evictions because people are going to be in financial straits. Well, that's come and gone. As a matter of fact, the government has introduced new legislation that some people are suggesting is going to make it easier for landlords to boot tenants out if they have not paid. Yesterday on the program, uh, we had a discussion with uh, Karima Syed, who was a, a Toronto lawyer who was advocating on behalf of tenants. And well, she had some rather harsh words about the political leaders that are making these policies. I think a lot of our leaders have never had to worry about losing the roof over their head. And I think that that comes through very clearly in the type of policy um, that we see or where or what issues are prioritized. So I, I do believe that there is a disconnect. Uh, and that was in essence of, the, of, of what she was saying. Uh, an awful lot of other people are advocating this, and there are some statistics right now that are very troubling that back up an awful lot of the concerns that have been raised. Joining us to talk about this is Tom Cooper, who is the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Uh, Tom, good to have you with us again. Thanks so much for the time today. Hi, Bill. Good to talk to you. Uh, you, among others, were the ones that predicted when this moratorium was put in place that, yeah, but it's going to end sometime, and, and then what? Uh, COVID-19 is not over yet. Unemployment is actually still on the increase. And, uh, well, the stats I saw on this today that uh, says that uh, the Landlord-Tenant Board has already received uh, almost 6,500 applications to evict tenants over non-payment of rent. Now, that's province-wide, but the Hamilton numbers are pretty startling as well. It's over 300. Yeah, that's correct. And, and we know, Bill, and as your guest yesterday said, it's hard enough maintaining affordable housing, dealing with your health and security during a pandemic. When the government is actively trying to hurt your, your ability to keep your, your home, uh, this is the exact worst time to, to bring in place this legislation that makes it easier for landlords to evict tenants. Uh, we know here in Hamilton, uh, it's, it's been even tougher. Uh, for tenants than it has been in the rest of the province. Uh, Global News reported between 2018 and 2019, uh, Hamilton actually had the highest rent increases in the entire country, uh, 24% year over year. And and so what we have is a really cascade of, of uh, events that are making it almost impossible for tenants to keep their heads above water, maintain that affordable housing, maintain... Uh, their ability to stay healthy uh, when we all need to be right now. And, and, and again, this was predicted, and it's, it's rather troubling to see that almost to the day when the moratorium was ended, uh, there was this big rush of applications to get people booted out. And as we talked about in, in our discussion yesterday, I, I understand that there's two sides to the story, and, and, and the landlords are people that may still you know need that income, et cetera, for, you know, to pay their mortgages or whatever the case might be. I get that. But we're basically here, Tom, talking about throwing people out on the street. Yeah, and it's going to cost us all more in the end. It's going to cost us in, in increasing homelessness numbers, which is going to have a, a, a huge impact on local budgets as well as, uh, as, well as provincial costs and, and federal costs too. Um, you know, th- there are alternative ways to do this, and we need to look at individual circumstances when tenants have been, and many of these tenants we're talking about are low-paid workers, uh, who have been laid off from their jobs. And we know CERB is going to be ending in the next uh, month or two. And who knows what their incomes will look like at that point, uh, whether they're going to be transitioned to employment insurance or, or, or other possible in- income security support. So we, we know this is the exact worst time to bring in, to lift that eviction freeze. And Bill 184, which is the new provincial legislation, uh, encourages landlords and tenants to sign repayment agreements. But even if tenants sign those agreements with the best intention, down the road they may not uh, be able to, to live up to those expectations. And it, the legislation has made it really 
uh, so much easier for landlords to evict them. Uh, they don't even have to go back to the Landlord-Tenant Board, which is the legal proceeding uh, where um, a tribunal decides whether a, uh, a landlord uh, can evict a tenant. And, and that may not be the process any longer. So it, it's, it's a really tough series of uh, uh, initiatives that the government has brought in that really doesn't have the back of tenants at all and, and seems to be much, much more friendly towards landlords. There, there's a baseline concern that I have about this, Tom, and it goes back to, to policy. And we're talking about a federal policy and a provincial policy here in the province of Ontario. And uh, the federal policy was announced last week, of course, by the Prime Minister that they're going to phase out the CERB benefit. And we understand that was going to happen at some point uh, and kind of morph it into EI. But the problem is, is the experts I had on this program who have explained to us exactly how this CERB works is not everybody who gets the CERB is going to qualify for EI. So yeah. I, that, that's going to leave some people in the lurch. And the other one is the provincial aspect of this, which I find is even more troubling. Uh, COVID-19 is not over. Unemployment is higher than it's been in God knows how long right now. Our economic slowdown is falling into a depression. Why in God's name would they end the moratorium? Why? Yeah, exactly. And I can't understand that. And, in, in, you know, I think your guest said it perfectly yesterday the the provincial government just doesn't get it they don't get the pressure well, we're not out on, of the woods yet Tom. and we're not and it is going to have a devastating impact on public health across the province can you imagine huge numbers of of families being evicted in our community and in communities right across ontario without without having the ability to physically isolate in their home um you know gathering together perhaps at at, at homeless shelters or you know that's not even an option uh, here in Hamilton because because the uh, because there's hardly any space and and so we're seeing uh, the the encampments popping up out of desperation and out of need for individual health and safety. Um, so this is absolutely, Bill. You're you're right. Uh, this is a bad policy decision and it's going to have a bad public health implication as well. I, I mean. Oftentimes, government policy is predicated on, on what kind of pressure they're getting from certain groups. We understand that, and and sadly, uh, you know that that may well have been the case here. But I don't know. I mean, I, again, I understand that landlords got some concerns about this, but the federal government was offering programs to try to compensate some of them for for loss of income uh, in situations like this. So I mean, there was a helping hand there. But you've done what I'd like to think that the governments could do here, Tom, is you connect the dots. We're having a debate here. There's one in Toronto, all over in London, Windsor, you name it, about homelessness. And, yep. and, you know, here in Hamilton, we've got a big debate, as you mentioned, about tent cities. Well, where do you think those people come from? They're, they're yep. there because they haven't got accommodation. They can't afford accommodation anymore. So yep. if we're going to continue, I mean, God forbid, but, I mean, the number that I saw here, about 6,500, 6,559 applications to evict tenants over nonpayments uh, since March 17th, uh, if even half of those people... Are, are booted out because of uh, of the adjudication that's going to happen with the Landlord-Tenant Board, where are they going to go? Yeah, exactly. And this country's lack of affordable housing initiatives over the over the last 20 years is coming home to roost now, um, you know, during, during this public health crisis. And, you know, unfortunately, people don't have places to go. The, um, if, if there are rental accommodations available, they're, they're far out of uh, many people's price range. Uh, as, as I mentioned, Hamilton had the highest rent increases in the entire country last year. Uh, average rents are, are in the range of $1,500 a month. Um, so even if you're getting $2,000 on CERB uh, for, for a little while, that's not going to last. You need more money for, for food and, and personal hygiene products and, and home cleaning supplies during a pandemic. Plus, there's an entire group of people who weren't even eligible for CERB in the first place. And, and those are social assistance recipients who are living in the deepest poverty in society. And they still have to rent as well. They have to rent the most meager uh, bachelor or one-bedroom apartments uh, that aren't safe, that aren't healthy. And it, it's a situation that is simply untenable and and to bring in uh ease for landlords to evict tenants right now is it's just so wrong-headed bill well we've talked about the communities that are impacted and everybody has been i mean our, our course london station of course the 980 cfpl where we're broadcasting from as well today uh, reported on this a couple of weeks ago. I was reading that on their webpage about some concerns raised there uh, by a number of people that are in the same predicament that you've just described here. 
and and I, I I'm wondering where are the voices here that are, are going to try to help these people. Toronto City Council, to their credit. Uh, is it trying to address this right now? They are. Uh, they voted last week to launch a legal challenge of the, the provincial law, uh, based on concerns about the impact of precarious housing renters are going to have uh, with loss of income and basically putting people out on the street. Uh, Hamilton City Council doesn't meet for another few weeks. August twenty-first is their next meeting. I don't even know if that's going to be on the agenda. But for those that are jumping up and down and screaming about the uh, the tent cities, we don't want that sort of thing in our community. Connect the dots here, people, because if you don't do something about this and people get booted out of the rental properties they're in right now, where are they going to go? And you know yeah. the answer to that. Exactly, exactly. And uh, and for tenants who are looking at a, a serious situation right now where maybe they weren't able to pay rent during the pandemic and, and didn't have the income, um, before before you sign repayment agreements, uh, talk to Hamilton Community Legal Clinic. Get some legal advice on on your rights and your obligations when you sign these uh, legal repayment agreements, uh, because it could make it even easier for uh, landlords to evict. Um, so their number is nine zero five five two seven four five seven two. Call them up. Uh, they're they're offering telephone advice right now uh, not in person service but uh, they would certainly uh, sure. i think make some uh, important uh, points about uh, what tenants should be doing right now yeah we've had stephanie cox from uh, the uh, community legal clinic on the show many times talking about issues such as this uh, and they're helpful and uh, they're great and, and the reason for that by the way is because let's face it this, this is an agreement this is a legally binding agreement that may be offered to you if you're in this precarious situation but it's 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 legalese and you have to understand what the ramifications are of doing it and it might be right for some people we don't know but always good to get a legal opinion on that to say yeah but did you think this is going to happen down the road think twice about this or they may say yeah go ahead you're going to be okay uh, a second opinion an, an educated second opinion from the, the folks at the community uh, legal clinic would be a good idea here yeah yeah absolutely and it, they've been doing important work looking at this legislation uh and and more and more we're seeing cautions and and red flags going up about uh what this could mean for tenants and i'm not sure the government even fully comprehends uh the scope of what this could mean in terms of potential future homelessness in our communities they they really need to take a second look at uh at, at allowing uh the uh fast-paced evictions that that seem to be accompanying this bill 184 uh, the, the province has not responded directly to this i think somebody from within the the, the ministry I, I guess sent an email to the spectator the other day when they were talking about some of this stuff uh, and they t- obviously take umbrage with the uh, the characterization that this is actually a, a, a something that's precarious for the for the tenants themselves, uh, you know, suggesting that it's actually a good thing for the tenants is what they're saying because it encourages repayment agreements. Well, that's only if you've got the money to repay, and not everybody is in that situation. But again, the poison pill here is is what you just talked about here is that if you go before the board, uh, and you go <clears throat> and have to sign one of these agreements. Uh, if you default on this or if you default on your rent, they can boot you out without even having a hearing now. Yeah. And, and yeah, why in heaven's name would they include that in the legislation? Yeah, exactly. And it, again, it's wrongheaded. Uh, it doesn't make any sense, especially during a pandemic, because people don't have places to go. Um, you know, if, if there was a, a glut of vacant rental apartments that were affordable in the community, maybe that something like that would make sense. But uh, vacancy rates are, are at some of their lowest levels I've ever seen and and prices are sky high and and so it's making it impossible if if tenants are forced out of their their apartment if the sheriff comes knocking on the door um there's going to be no place to go and you know when more and more tenants are facing this situation it's it's going to create a absolute community crisis and and as we've talked about we've seen the ramifications of that from from the encampments uh, that are there out of necessity, because people don't have other options right now. This is a this is a payback for <clears throat> excuse me government inaction that's been going on for years. I think I told you the story back in my political days when I was on city council. It was 1998. I still remember it clearly. Uh, we were in Halifax for the Federation of Canadian Municipalities Conference, which which is you know all the political municipal leaders from right across the country uh, at a convention. And the topic, the main topic that everybody was talking about, was affordable housing. Uh, and and the plea was, where is the money for this? And this was 1998. And subsequent governments have always said, oh, yeah, 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 we're going to do that. It's always in the throne speech, and it's always in some budget. But it never happens, and not to the degree that we need. And now, all of a sudden, COVID hits. 
And look at the precarious situation that everybody's in. And it's all because governments didn't act over the last 30 years to do something about affordable housing. Yeah, and and that's absolutely true. And now that we are in this situation, the affordable housing just isn't available. And there are very few policy levers you can put in place uh, over a over a very quick period of time that would solve that type of problem. The only only option I see is putting more income in people's hands uh, so that they can keep uh, their current rental accommodations. And, and um, one way to do that, and you and I have talked about it many times in the past, is is basic income. And transitioning CERB once it ends to a, to a national basic income so everybody has a solid financial foundation so they can afford things like uh, affordable housing, like food, uh, like, uh, like hygiene, um, supplies, uh, home, home, um, home household uh, supplies, that sort of thing is, is absolutely essential right now. So I, I really think the federal government needs to take a second look at uh, the idea of implementing a national basic income, even if it's an emergency measure that lasts a year or so. Uh, just to stabilize people's lives so that they can stay in their housing, stay safe, uh, stay healthy, and, uh, and and then we wouldn't have to worry about these mass evictions. Tom Cooper from the uh, Roundtable for Poverty Reductions. As always, Tom, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you again today. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. How long is COVID-19 going to be with us? There are some people in the political realm who, by the way, have no medical training, that seem to think that once we get a vaccine, whatever that's going to be, that our happy days are here again and our troubles will all be over. Well, there was a rather sobering message from uh, uh, Dr. Teresa Tam yesterday when she warned us about exactly what we're dealing with and how long we could be dealing with it. Vaccine is a very important aspect of the response going forwards, but we can't at this stage just put all of our focus on in the hopes that this is the silver bullet solution. Uh, it is a very important solution if we get a safe and effective vaccine. But I would say that the public health measures that we have in place, the sort of personal daily uh, measures that we take is going to have to continue. And uh, quite honestly, a lot of it is uh, good personal hygienic practices that we should sustain in the long run anyways. Dr. Teresa Tam, uh, actually echoing some of the things that uh, Dr. Tony Fauci had said in the United States about this a little bit earlier, too. And the reason I'm bringing this up today is because there seems to be an attitude with some people, and I've seen this even since I've been back to work this week on social media, thinking, you know what, this the, the worst is over. You know, the numbers are going down, we're stabilizing this, and this is fine. So who, who really needs a mask? I, maybe this social distancing thing was overrated. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Dr. Isaac Bogosh, who is a staff physician, uh, general internal medicine and infectious disease associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Oh, not a problem at all. Happy to chat. Let's let's talk a little bit about what attitudes here. And, and I think the message from Dr. Tam yesterday, something I know you've talked to us about in the past, is we got a long way to go. This is a marathon, not a sprint. And COVID's going to be with us for some time. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. And I, I like that message uh, that, that she parlayed. It was sort of similar to what uh, the head of the WHO was saying the other day as well. Just that, you know, even if we do get a vaccine, I shouldn't say if, when we do get a vaccine, we have to be realistic. It's going to take a while for this to roll out across Canada. It's going to take a while for this to roll out across the world. It's probably not going to be, well, we don't know yet. Uh, it might not be a perfect 100% protection against the virus type of vaccine. Uh, might provide some protection against the virus. So even with all that in mind, I think this is still going to take a while. Now, obviously, don't get me wrong, a vaccine is going to be a vaccine is going to be extremely helpful and is going to do a lot of the heavy lifting to get us back toward normalcy, or at least as what we remember pre-COVID-19. But um, but it's it, it's still going to take a while. It's still going to take a while, right? We need these vaccines to be uh, well tested for starters, to be produced, to be administered, and to be successful. It's going to take some time. 
I'm glad you brought up the efficacy of this because that's something that I know that, that you and other experts have talked about over the last little while uh, that maybe the general public may not be aware of. That, uh, and I, I think the phrase that Dr. Tam used was a silver bullet that we might be anticipating. And, and that's probably because there are some politicians that are that are substantiating that, that, that idea that you know, it's, it's, it's going to be all done once we get this. We don't even know how effective it's going to be, which is which is why... The earliest I've seen, and I think it was a pretty optimistic prediction, but it could well be spring of 2021 before we even see any kind of a, a vaccine. Yeah, there's a few points on that. So for one is that there are about 160, 180 vaccines that are under development right now. That's pretty impressive. And of those, uh, just over two dozen are in human clinical studies. The rest are in pre, they call preclinical studies, which means they're still in the lab phase. The ones that are in human clinical studies uh of those there's there's three different stages of human clinical studies stage one or phase one phase two phase three the phase three ones are the big ones those they're all important they're all very important uh, but the phase three ones are basically that final phase where you're really enrolling thousands and thousands and thousands of people and you're looking at two things one does this vaccine work and two how safe is it in, in a bigger population of the thousands and thousands of people that have been, been getting it? So you really have to conduct these phase three clinical trials. And when we look at all the vaccines that are in development right now, there's about I think, five or six of them that are in phase three clinical trials. One of them is actually wrapping up. We're probably going to get the results of the Oxford vaccine study mm-hmm. by late August or, or early September. Listen, a lot needs to go right, right? There's a lot of things that need to go right. But if everything goes right, which, of course, we know that happens all the time. If everything goes right, you know, it's not outlandish to think that there will be a vaccine program starting in late 2020. Of course, it could certainly not happen. I'm just saying it's possible. But, of course, the more likely scenario is early 2021 um, and, and even later. And, and then, again, th- th- those would be the early vaccines that are under development. But there's a ton of vaccines that are under development, and but most of them are going to fail. But a handful of them are going to be successful in phase three clinical trials are going to pass the uh, regulatory bodies and be integrated into routine routine use. And like just like influenza vaccines, we have several different influenza vaccines. We're probably going to have several different COVID-19 vaccines. And that's important because we need different groups to try different approaches to make this vaccine. We need different companies and different infrastructure to mass produce these. We need. Uh, functioning healthcare systems to administer them to large populations. There's a lot of things that need to be done. What, before I stop babbling on and on, one of the <laughs> no, cool. no, this is good. This is helpful. <laughs> one of the other important things is that many of these countries, Canada included, is taking all the steps necessary to ensure that when a vaccine is available, they can really seamlessly start to introduce it into the community. So, for example, Canada's bought 37 million vials. 37 million vials to administer a vaccine that doesn't even exist yet. Like they're getting ready. There's a vaccine task force that's going to prioritize who's going to get the vaccine first, you know, probably long-term care facilities and people over the age of 60 and people with underlying medical conditions and frontline healthcare workers. You know, there's going to be a priority of who's going to be, who can access this first. And again, we don't even have a successful vaccine yet. So a lot of the heavy lifting is being done right now to prepare for these and, and so many questions. I know in one of your previous t- times on the show here, you were talking about, the again, the efficacy of the vaccine. Is it a one-time shot, or do you have to get one every year, like a flu shot? We don't know that yet, do we? No, no, we certainly don't. And, you know, time will tell. Time will tell. And, of course, in Canada, there's about a billion dollars being invested into answering these big questions. Of course, there's worldwide, it's truly, like, infinite resources being being poured into this. I, I just to remind people, though, you know, success looks – there's a lot of different – quote unquote, successes, right? One success would be, I mean, in a perfect world, you'd have a one and done approach, right? You get your yeah. shot, that's the end of that, you're good for the next 40 to 60 years or something like that. I don't know if that's likely to happen. It's certainly a possibility, but we'll see. I think another, a more likely possibility is that the vaccine will provide some degree of protection. And again, this is pure speculation here, but sure. it'll provide some degree of, of, of protection, and even if it does, just like the flu shots, even if it, even if it does provide, you know, I don't know, I'm making up a number here, 40 to 60 percent protection, it, it'll still be doing a tremendous job, a tremendous job. And similarly to that, if the vaccine, if in people who get the vaccine, uh, if they are unlucky enough to get COVID-19, if it reduces the risk of having a severe outcome, then the vaccine, I would consider that a huge success as well. Right. Let's limit death. Let's limit severe outcomes, let's limit morbidity like hospitalizations and, and illness. 
if, if it can do that, we're doing something right. Let me ask you about process here, if I could, because when we, I guess going back to February, March now, when we started, I think, to get a full understanding of, of just how treacherous this, this virus is, and there was talk about, okay, we've got to find a vaccine, and then, then people started to go to work on that. But we were cautioned at the time by people like Dr. Tam and yourself and, and Dr. Fauci in the States and others that, look, at this could take years, two years, three years, even, and that's, that's usual or longer. Now we're sort of talking about sometime within 12 to 18 months of the time we actually even discovered about COVID-19. How were we able to accelerate that process? I love this. This is, this is like, this is what you can get when you have, you know, good questions to ask and infinite resources and infinite brains to answer that question. I mean, this is what happens when you fund science. It's phenomenal. Uh, and it's really exciting to see, right? Like, there, they, there's a couple of things. One is they're, they're, they didn't start from scratch. None of these vaccine programs are really starting from scratch. A lot, mo- all that I know of, are basically using uh, well-developed, pre-existing vaccine platforms to develop a vaccine. So it's not like someone just walked into a lab and said, okay, let's take a look at this COVID virus <laughs> and then rolled up their sleeves. Like, you know, people basically were using... Uh, some some teams are using you know pre-existing vaccine vectors and and, and that that are already used in in with other safe effective human vaccines and are tweaking it slightly to uh, to adapt it to COVID nineteen. Others are taking uh, different va- approaches where you know it, while perhaps these vaccine types have not yet been used successfully in humans there's still a ton of research and development getting them closer and closer to human use and they're pushing the envelope on that front so i mean it's i people didn't hit the everyone hit the ground running right no one was just starting from a blank slate and that's why we can be as far along as we are now that and there's truly like i don't know what the right word is gazillions maybe of (laughs) dollars being poured into it uh, yeah, this is kind of like a, the, the the scientific world has just won the lottery, hasn't it? I mean, you've been asking for governments for years and years now, fund us and we can do much more here. And now all of a sudden when they see this crisis, uh, they yeah. started listening to it. Yeah, but you know what? Don't forget us when this is done, right? Like exactly. everything else, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. And, yeah, maybe it'll be a year. Maybe it'll be two years. But this will go away at some point. And we're still here. <laughs> and, and, and there still is the risk of a pandemic. Look, we got... I don't, I'm not, again, I don't know what the right word is, but with H1N1, I mean, we got kind of lucky that it was H1N1 and, and that killed a lot of people. People often forget it's a, it's a, that was influenza and influenza stinks. That kills a lot of people worldwide. Yeah. It's a, it's influenza's bad, but, uh, but, but in a way we got lucky is the wrong word, but it, it could have been a lot worse if it was a more, uh, if the virus was, was deadlier, like it is with, with COVID-19. Like we've had big epidemics and pandemics over the last 17 years. You know, you've got SARS, you've got MERS, you've got COVID-19, you've got H1N1, you had Ebola throughout West Africa with exported cases, you had Zika all over Latin America and the Caribbean. You have, I don't know if people have heard of this one, chikungunya, which never was in uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. And that was introduced. Like there's just a lot of this happening and, uh, and it's going to continue to happen. And, uh, the, you know, the time to invest is now and uh, and there's still a lot of work that needs to be done after this pandemic is over, setting up early detection systems, global coordination strategies, learning a ton about what went right and learning a ton about what went wrong during this pandemic and just asking the hard questions and investing where we need to invest to really prevent this from happening again or at least reduce the probability that this happens again. Yeah, this is all perspective, isn't it? I, as you've been talking about, uh, and <clears throat> folks like uh, yourselves in infectious diseases, uh, COVID-19 is only the latest of, uh, of the coronaviruses that, that we're dealing with right now. It's not the first, and it's probably not going to be the last. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are viruses that live in, in nature, usually in other non-human animals. And, and whenever humans come into close contact with non-human animals, doesn't matter what venue it's in, we know infections can jump ship and, and end up in humans. And a lot of them don't do anything. But a lot of them do, and some have epidemic and pandemic potential, and and, and here we are. Uh, so it's it's just we can't we can't ignore this, and obviously we're in the throes of this terrible pandemic, and, and trying to you know force Gump our way out of this mess that we're in, and and we will we will, 
But uh, but after this is over, I still think it's just like it's vital that we remember uh, that there there is a lot that can be done to really prevent stuff like this from happening. The other element to uh, Dr. Tam's statement, uh, I think we have to probably finish off on this, is, yes, it's going to take a while, and uh, it's not going to be the silver bullet. But part B to that was we still have a responsibility here for masking and social distancing. I mean, that, those days are not over yet. No, I, I, I completely agree. I mean, certainly, even, like, obviously we don't have a vaccine yet, so social distancing is, is key. You know, putting on a mask when you're going into an indoor setting is hand hygiene is key like there's just fundamental public health uh principles that we just need to adhere to for the for the foreseeable future and i'm not saying if i'm saying when a vaccine becomes available it's not going to be universally uh implemented in canada uh it's probably going to be done piecemeal and it's probably going to take some time before we're going to have access you know before all 37 million of us are going to have access to it and during that period of time, I think we're still going to need to adhere to these uh, public health measures to really protect the unvaccinated. It really is. It really is important. So uh, it is going to be with us for some time. But, you know, I, I really, truly, as bad as things look right now, I don't think it is all doom and gloom. Like you look at the pace of, of research for vaccination. You look at some of the successes that they've had in their early clinical trials and in the laboratory studies and there's a lot of you know there's a lot of sticks in that fire there and, and yeah some of them most of them will fail but a lot of them look really really good and i'm i'm fairly optimistic that we're going to have not one we're probably going to have several successful vaccines rolling out hopefully you know, obviously the earlier the better maybe the earliest ones will be sometime in this calendar year but more likely we'll see more of them in the, the early part of 2021 and it's there's a there's a lot to be hopeful for as long as we maintain what we're supposed to be doing here, because the, the spikes right. are what concerns me in the meantime, and we've seen that happen every time we let our guard down. Oh, uh, yeah. the, we saw that picture of the weekend of somebody. It was a beach in Wisconsin, right on Lake Michigan there, and yeah. they were cheek to jowl there, and I figure it was no masks, obviously, no social distancing. Uh, and so I'm waiting to see in about 14 days the spike that's going to happen there in, in Wabasha yeah. in Wisconsin. I hear you. I'm more concerned about indoor settings. I mean, yeah. like, I get it. I get it. I get it. We're not supposed to be, like you say, cheek to jowl. And I, I, I believe you. I'm with you. I stand by that. I stand by our public health uh, leaders. But like, when it's when people are out, I think at the end of the day, and again, when we look at, I, I think two years from now, when we're looking back, we're going to say, okay, you know, not a lot of people. I'm not saying none, but not a lot of people got this outdoors. And this is truly something where we saw most transmission in indoor settings. And of course, even though if public, you know, public health says you can only have blank number of people together while physically distant, I'm all for that. I totally stand by that, uh, and, I, and I adhere to that. But at the end of the day, like that, what concerns me now are house parties, like crowded house parties. Uh, obviously, thinking a lot about kids going back to school, uh, people going back to work, people getting complacent, and, and really clustering of people in indoor settings for prolonged periods of time regardless of the setting that's what really concerns me especially as the cooler fall months are, are uh, not too far away i don't want to think about it it's only early august <laughs> but like it's gonna get cold soon and uh and I, we're just gonna have a lot of reasons to be in indoor settings and i think uh it, it's not going to come to anyone's surprise if we just start to see a, a rise in cases then as well exactly doctor always a pleasure having you on the program thank you so much for the time today no worries. Have a great day. You too. Dr. Isaac Volgash, of course, from the University of Toronto, infectious disease specialist. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. With the school year less than a month away now and uh, a lot of concerns being raised, but some parents are being rather innovative about this, and they all have some concerns. We all want our kids to be safe. We want them to go back to school, but we want it to be a safe environment. So uh, this has created what we call pandemic pods. Some parents are actually taking education into their own hands. Uh, Rachel Marmer is a parent who is doing that with a pandemic pause. She's uh, joining us here on the Bill Keller Show on 900 CHML to explain that. Rachel, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Absolutely. Thanks, Bill, for having me. Maybe let's start with uh, this. Is, back to my education. Let's start with the definition. What exactly are we talking about with pandemic pods? Well, pandemic pods or learning pods, which I prefer, are small groups of children coming together with a teacher to facilitate education in a new mode of learning. Uh, it's customizable to a family's specifications and needs, so there's no 
one-size-fits-all solution for families. And it's really just about empowering parents uh, together to build learning communities for their children during these times. Yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about, we'll talk about the structure of it in just a couple of seconds. But first and foremost, uh, let's talk about the, the reaction and the response. I mean, as a, as a parent, uh, you've seen what the, the plan is here in Ontario, and there are other similar plans, of course, in different provinces around the country these days. Are you concerned or are you comfortable with the plan that the, go- the government's putting forth? Well, I hate to be critical of the government as a citizen, you know. Well, if you're going to be, this is a great forum to do it, so go ahead. I mean, I probably am not alone in thinking that their action or inaction around education and many other things, you know, throughout these crises has been maybe lacking. Um, I mean, I think waiting until August to formulate any plan is leaving parents completely in the lurch. Um and yes, I think people are disappointed with what they're hearing being put forth. Um, and I mean, listen, it is tough times, but I am critical of the decisions that have been made from our leaders because I think there has been a lack of leadership. And so that's why I have just decided I'm not waiting around anymore for them to figure it out. I, my kids' future and their education this year is a top priority, maybe not for them, but for me. And so I got to make this happen, right? I have a business to run and a roof to put over my kids' heads. I need to know that they are busy and in school and safe. And if they're not going to make the plan, then I will. Well, you're not alone. I mean, as we just mentioned, we just talked uh, in the last segment with somebody who's got that online petition with thousands of signatures on this already, uh, raising some concerns about the government plan. And and I guess what we're wondering here, because uh, we need to see just exactly how parents are feeling about this. I made a mention uh, when I was talking with uh, with Kelly Iggers, who uh, is behind the petition, that I've got four teachers living right across the road from us. I've been broadcasting from home, of course, for the last five months because of COVID. Uh, and they're raising the same concerns. And, and other families in the neighborhood here too who are not teachers but they have kids that may be going back to school are saying i'm not so sure that it's going to be safe uh because kids can be exposed teachers can be exposed to situations like this and and you know if somebody tests positive then there's there's the idea of tracing and a number of other things that are going on right now uh and there's a lot of unease right now about about this plan and when it's going to actually be happening Absolutely. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll admit that there are parents in the group and that reach out to me that are on different sides of the spectrum as far as the plan. Some feel it's not enough. Some feel maybe it's too much. Um, so, you know, in any event, parents all across the board are unhappy with the plan um, or lack thereof and, um, and are looking for alternative solutions. Uh, by the way, I agree with your assessment, though, calling them learning pads instead of pandemic pods. Whoever put that moniker in there is probably just going for alliteration. I, I get that, too. It's, it's kind of cute. But let's talk about how these are going to work. How do you see, foresee this happening? Well, right now there are some restrictions in, like, in numbers of kids that can join to learn because there are some homeschooling regulations that only limit the number to four children, which creates a financial burden because families which are privately funding these teachers to come and teach their children can only split that cost as much as four ways. I would urge the government to please change that legislation immediately and quickly and swiftly so that we can maybe have larger numbers so that we can split the cost amongst six families instead of four. Um, But basically what it will look like is going to be different for different families because of different comfort levels and different families' needs. I'm getting messages every day, you know, of, of Some people want full-time, some part-time. Everybody has very different needs. So my message is you can create what works for you and your family. There are enough people looking for alternative options that we can create learning communities for our kids that do suit the needs of specific individual families. Part of what I'm trying to do is pair families up with like-minded families in their neighborhoods, with kids their own ages, um, with similar like-minded ideologies and sensitivities during these times and you know and create little learning communities and pods that will come together and learn and play socialize interact and as well as learn and um, of course following ministry education guidelines Um, and that's hopefully the plan homeschooling is not new it's been around for quite some time Uh, is this really just a variation on that theme a little bit homeschooling is definitely a philosophical decision parents make i'm finding this is you know we're making this decision more out of necessity i mean this is not necessarily sure. a long-term decision if i could send my kids back in a way i felt comfortable tomorrow then i would prefer that 
Um, this is not the ideal for me or any parent. Um, so, you know, I hope I don't know where it's going in, in the long term. But but the fact that these are popping up all over the place, uh, obviously you're trying to set one up right now. Uh, other jurisdictions have done this. I, I did some reading on this this morning, and apparently in some places in the States, uh, San Francisco jumps to mind, but there are other places right now that are doing something similar. So this this concern about going back to school and the, the manner in which the kids are going to go back to school is, is not unique to this area. This is, this, is, this is something that I guess right across North America some people are raising some, I think, very valid concerns about. Absolutely. I mean, I would venture to say that it's global, right? This is a pandemic, which means it's a global sure. problem. So, I mean, this is something that schools all across the world are talking about masks and different things. You know, there's articles circulating all the time about how different countries opened up and how it worked for them. And so this is things that the world over right now is, you know, handling and, and new challenges for everyone everywhere, not just in North America. So it's... How old are your kids? I have one going into third grade, he's eight, and one going into first grade, she's six, and I also have a two-year-old and a six-month-old who came around just at the peak of all of this. (laughs) Exciting times. Yeah. Exciting times. Are are they aware of of, of COVID-19? Are they aware why they, they, you know, there's some concern? Have you had those discussions? We do. I mean, out of the mouth of babes, sometimes I wonder how they know some of what they know, um, and they say the funniest things about it. I try to keep it, you know, light and not scary. I know that there's a lot of mental health concerns for children around all the fear. And I think when children see adults afraid, that that affects them. So my attitude has been to, you know, put on a brave face and a happy face for them and try and keep them a little bit insulated from what's going on as much as possible, but still keeping them aware. It's that unfiltered response you get from kids that that I find so enticing. I mean, you know, they 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 don't necessarily, you know, just what's in their head comes out of their mouth, and that's that's fun. And 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 they're a lot more aware than I think a lot of parents uh, would would give them credit for because so they true. they listen. They, they they listen. They may not comment about something, but they're listening and they're taking it in. Uh, some of the things they have said to me may just really rings true when you say that because absolutely, like as a joke, you know, my son t- wanted to take a sip from his daughter's cup and she made a joke about we can't share, you know, COVID-19. So and not not to make light and it's not funny, but obviously, you know, there it is seeping in and they are getting that from somewhere. There is an awareness um, with all our children, no matter how much we try to protect them, which I have done, and yet they still are quite aware. So... These are the times. It's everywhere. You can't really hide from it or avoid it. And so I just want to keep my kids happy. And Not safe. And safe, of course, absolutely. And, but so so they're, they're aware of this. So, so obviously they're going to have some concerns about this. And, and one of the things, as I was reading through the government's plan here and listening to what the Premier was saying about it last week, uh, was how are you going to keep a bunch of kids in grade one or two social distancing? I mean, uh, we are by nature social animals. I mean, we, we love to, to, to be together with other people, and, and kids love to be together, especially at that age, uh, because there are no barriers, physical or emotional barriers, for many kids, most kids in that stage, too. Uh, I, I would think, and I know we're kind of crossing back into the, the idea of the online petition about class sizes again, but if you're going to put 20 or 30 kids in a classroom, as, as the government seems to be wanting to do right now, uh, the chances of social distancing I think, are slim and none for some of those smaller classes. Absolutely. Absolutely. If parents can get creative on ways to educate their children, I I believe the government, with all its resources and manpower, can be doing more than they are. And I don't feel education's been prioritized in the slightest and making this a safe return or a thoughtful return. um, In my opinion, they have failed miserably to do so. Personally, as a parent, I was wanting more information back in June, you know, in July, and wondering why are they waiting until August to tell parents a thing. And I don't think that's responsible. These are our children's education, millions of children. I mean, this should be top priority. And I don't, I mean, I don't feel it has been, but that's, again, I don't mean to criticize our government, but that is, that is my genuine feeling, that it hasn't been top priority. Well, when we talked about that before, you know, the, they came out with this plan, and you're right, it was just around May or June when, you know, oh, is there going to be a school year, what it's going to look like when they finally do go back to school. I think just about all of us at that time anyway, Rachel, had anticipated smaller classes. As a matter of fact, there was even some discussion, and I'm sure you've heard this too, that, well, if they're going to be smaller classes, uh, they're probably going to have to hire more teachers because there's going to be the same student body, but it's going to be divided up more. So maybe some of those teachers who lost their jobs last year might be actually be calling back. But the government, uh, and again, I, I, far be it for me to criticize the government, but, uh, 
it, they they they're holding the line on this. I mean, you know, are they doing this as cheaply as possible, or is it the best possible solution? Yes, I I would love to hear their response to that as well. <laughs> you wonder? This is, yeah, absolutely. I wonder. I absolutely wonder. Now, listen. Let's let's assume that things go on. I know you're still putting this whole thing together and getting kids uh, who are interested in this. But uh, talk about how this is actually going to work. The curriculum, how you teach, what you teach, uh, and who teaches in situations like that. These are great questions and, and commonly asked questions. And and I and I hate to skirt the answer, but the truth is there isn't a one size fits all response to that. Okay. Um. It it will look different for different families and different people. Um. So there, I, there is a survey that we've put together on the the Learning Pods Ontario Facebook group that asks a myriad of questions about what the parent is looking for, and that's really what it's going to look like. It's, it, I, I can't tell you what it will look like for other families because that really depends on what they're looking for. But for my family, um, you know, I found a great pod. I, I'm thinking, you know, we're in the talks. We've almost finalized ourselves as a as a pod. Uh, with four, you know, four families total, myself included, first graders. Um, morning time will be a learning schedule, and afternoon each day will be sort of learning through play and more physical activity, and, and the morning will be more of a structured learning. We are in talks with a teacher tomorrow. We're interviewing her, all four families together. Um, we're going to discuss things like pay, all the parameters. Um, I've put together resources um there will be things going up soon like questions you can ask the teacher you're interviewing things to think about um all these sorts of things to help parents get their own pods set up um so these are things that i'm doing to kind of help bring families clarity but what it will look like will really depend on families and budget is again another factor um and it's not a small factor it's a a big deal um so that is another you know another key component for families how uh Yep. Go ahead. Go ahead. So there are just many different moving parts and factors that make up, you know, what a pod will look like for families. Is the ministry amenable to this? I mean, they say, okay, fine, that's a viable alternative, or are they going to be upset, and is there going to be some pushback here? Um, Well, to be honest, I anticipate pushback because I'm not sure how they'll respond. I would love for them to be supportive and to mobilize quickly and change some legislation allowing parents to maybe meet in larger groups because right now we're limited to numbers of four. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, like technically speaking, parents are allowed at any point in time to opt out of the regular school board by sending a letter of intent to their school board and you can then opt to homeschool. It's a very easy process. Parents can do it at any point in time, pre-COVID, pre-pandemic. Um, so, and people have opted for that all the time. So it's, and, and you are allowed to do that and you can teach your children with groups of four. So technically, legally speaking, it's all on board. How they'll respond to vast numbers of children being out of the school board, I don't know. I can't anticipate what they'll make of it. I hope they'll be supportive and they'll put resources into making this a possibility rather than making more barriers for parents, which is my prediction. I predict that's what they'll do. Um, But I would like to see them be supportive. That's what I would hope they would do. Well, and job one there, if they want to show some support for this, would be, as you say, to modify this legislation where you can have more than four kids in a situation like that. I mean, this is, to use the phrase that we've all heard a million times during COVID, the new normal, and it's going to be the normal for probably some time to come. And the concerns that you've talked about here are not going away anytime soon. Right, right. Well, I mean, yes, I, certainly if the numbers, if we were allowed a slightly larger group, it would certainly help the financial end of this for parents because they could then split the cost of a teacher six ways instead of four ways. And this is already going to be a financial burden for parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so allowing us to congregate in with larger groups of six, seven or eight, whatever a, a family is comfortable with, quite frankly, will will definitely change the financial burden of this for parents. So I would beg them to mobilize and quickly change that legislation for us immediately to make to make that a possibility for families before September. That would be my call to action for them. Well, and we'll see how the minister responds to this. Uh, in a physical environment, once the uh, the learning pod actually starts, uh, do you take COVID precautions there, too. Uh, Social distancing, I would assume, has got to be part of that. But even uh, the minister was talking about masking in some situations, etc. In a small group like that, do you you go that way, too? Well, 
I don't want to speak out of turn or say this is. I will say that one of the questions that we're asking all family is extensive questions about COVID, risk assessment, and their comfort levels, immunocompromised family members, taking all these factors into account and trying to match people based on ideologies around COVID. Because like I said, there are families that are less inclined to be concerned about social distancing. In fact, part of the reason they want to keep their kids home is because they don't want to subject their first grader to social distancing restrictions. So part of the benefit of a pod is that they're in smaller numbers and they maybe don't need to worry about those restrictions as much. And so maybe those pods are not concerned about these types of things quite as much as some other pods. The uh, the minister also talked about uh, a responsibility, and this is for the, you know, the traditional school system that they're going to try to move back to in September with the with this and and what they call social distancing but they're putting a, a, some of the responsibility on parents to monitor their kids on a daily basis and not testing because obviously we don't have that capability but uh, but monitoring which I guess looks basically every morning looking for symptoms to see if the kids are, are are safe which I think every parent does anytime any before they send the kids off to school pre-covid and, and now with covid as well 100 percent uh, of course you do. I mean, if you know, if you, your, your child's got a fever or something like that, I mean, you know, that that sets you off in a whole different situation. But uh, but will the parents uh, in these learning pods will they also have that responsibility to make sure that the kids are okay and raise red flags if there is one that starts showing symptoms? I'm going to say yes to that. Absolutely. It, this is a fascinating idea, and like I say, not new and not unique, uh, although it's, I think, a, a very viable alternative to some of the things the province has uh, put forth here. Uh, if people want to get advice on this, I guess, uh, Rachel, the best thing to do is maybe go to the Facebook group? Absolutely. You can join the Facebook group. There's lots of parents sharing information there. Um, you're welcome to reach out to me privately as well. I'm doing my best to keep up with messages and stuff, but the Facebook group has quite a bit of resources. We're still working on making it more functional um, with resources and files and things of that nature. But absolutely, it's a great starting off point for people and fill in the survey. Educators and teachers are welcome to come as well. And and we have a survey for them as well. And, um, you know, we're looking for help in all sorts of ways. So if anybody has ideas or resources, please, please feel free to reach out and help make this a reality for parents across the province right now. Learning Pods Ontario is the Facebook group. You can check that out and uh, get all that information. Uh, Rachel, congratulations on, on uh, this initiative and uh, continued good luck with this. And here's hoping that the province uh, does lend some of that support that you've been talking about. I don't know. We'll stay in touch and uh, track and see how this is going. Thank you so much for giving me the platform to share this with parents. And I hope that this is helpful to people out there and empowering as well. Exactly. Thanks again, Rachel. Thank you kindly. Take care. Rachel Marmer, of course, the, the parent who's starting one of these learning pods. And like I say, go to the Learning Pods Ontario Facebook group if you want to get more details. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.